This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Unapologetically Fueled podcast, where we talk nutrition, identity, performance, and the psychology behind it all. Hello, my friends, and welcome to a solo episode. So today is the third episode in my three-part gut health series, um, and I'm super hyped for this one. So basically today is just going to be a deep dive into what literature says about gut health and the gut-brain connection and how what our microbiome, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit, how it impacts our mental health and how our mental health impacts the microbiome. I'm going to talk about some really cool studies today and I'm super excited. So gut health is like one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, and I like, if you know me, like, you know, I post so much about gut health on my Instagram and that's just because this is the area that I'm going into in my research. So for those of you who don't know, or if you are listening for the first time, or if you have not seen my Instagram content or anything, um, I am a clinical psychology PhD student. However, I am like a clinical health psychology PhD student technically. So I focus my research in clinical health psychology. And what that means is like looking at how our bodies and our minds are connected. And I'm gonna be working clinically in a medical field, um, specifically wanna focus on gastroenterology um, and uh, eating behaviors. Um, and also I'm interested in some like psycho-oncology stuff too. But basically my research looks at how our emotions, our mental health impacts our physical health, like our gut health um, and vice versa. And then I do want to work, like I said, clinically in a medical setting. So it's kind of confusing, you know, figuring out like the difference between clinical psychologists, clinical health psychologists, um, medical doctors, but we're all kind of in the same triage. So anyway, that's just a little background on who I am and what I do and why I'm so into this topic, um, especially as a runner, especially as somebody who cares a lot about their health. Um, and I'm even going to go go into some studies today about how like athletes have like different microbiomes than do regular people or NARPs as we call them. But you know, you're an athlete if you move your body and that is my philosophy. But anyway, um, yeah, so I'm very excited for this episode. Um, and I have my setup over here. My dog is at my feet. I have some poppy, which is like my favorite beverage for gut health. Okay, guys, I do not support brands that I do not agree with and that I know are not evidence-based. And poppy is like my favorite. I am not sponsored by poppy. Poppy has not, you know, poppy has not told me anything. They haven't sent me products. They haven't told me to do anything, but I love poppy, you guys. Like it literally calms my stomach so much. And like the ingredients are perfect. They're evidence-based. Like they poppy is better in my opinion than some competing brands that i won't name just for the sake of you know i don't know being nice on this show because i believe that every brand has its positive things but anyway i love poppy so poppy if you hear this and you want to sponsor me like please do i literally would die like i love you guys so much and i drink one of you every day so yeah anyway i have my poppy here i also have some scandinavian swimmers from trader joe's because they're so yummy they're like my favorite like if you know you know i'm like on a big like 
fruity, like, chewy gummy and, like, bagel kick lately. I don't know what it is, but, like, you know, that's just my cravings. And maybe my gut bacteria are trying to tell me something. And we're going to talk about that today, too, about how your gut bacteria actually influence what you're craving so anyway, before we get into like the nitty gritty of the content and stuff, I am going to just put a disclaimer out here. Yes, I am a clinical psychology PhD student. I am familiar with good research. I know how to look at literature um, and do deep dives into studies and look at the stats they used and the methods they used and the conclusions that they made from those methods um, and their whole background and importance of the study. But this does not mean I am a doctor yet. I will be a doctor. I am a doctor in training, but I am not a doctor yet. So this is not a replacement for seeing a gastroenterologist, a psychologist, or a nutritionist. So please, if you are experiencing gut health problems or if you have further questions about gut health um, and you want to talk to your doctor, like please seek medical, per, like, medical attention for that. Um, I, am not, I am not licensed yet. I... Like I said, I'm not a doctor yet, so this is just me coming from a trainee um, and everything that I know and the knowledge that I've obtained. So yeah, with that being said, I'm just going to get into it. I'm um, Basically what I'm going to do, I'm going to break down like what is gut health, what is our microbiome, how does it connect to our brain, and then I'm going to answer your questions. So I posted on my story a few weeks back, kind of like I asked me questions about gut health and everything, and I'm going to go into research and try to answer your questions in the best empirically supported way as possible. Same with the Instagram post. So I do also want to put a disclaimer out there that every study in this, um, in this podcast that I'm going to talk about, it it is strong. It is, has strong methodology. I am very supportive of it. I did not include studies in here that I don't think have good methods and they're not great um, looking at some of their statistical analyses. So I left those out and everything. Of course, there's caveats to any study, but I do want to tell you guys that like these claims that we're going to be talking about today, they're not absolute and they're studies and we never say prove anything in science. So you guys are going to hear some really cool studies out there, but don't go say like, oh, this causes this, like this proves this. We always say in science, this supported this. So just a little disclaimer with that too. So take this with a grain of salt. It's very, very valid, um, valuable and useful information and very interesting, but also don't take this as a black and white, all or nothing type of thing because there's always gonna be individual differences. So I did wanna put those disclaimers out there before we get into the episode, just for you guys to understand where I'm coming from and where I want you guys to interpret this episode from. So anyway, with all that being said, let's get into it. So gut health. Gut health, I feel like, is a very popular term right now, like going all over social media. There's people that are posting stuff about gut health and I'm like, girl or guy or whoever you are, like, you are not like, do not say, like, they're saying some crazy, crazy things. Like, oh, like, never eat sugar because it's so bad for your gut microbiome or whatever. And it's like, oh, I do all these things for gut health. I take all these apple cider vinegar shots. And, well, apple cider vinegar, yes, it does have support for your gut health. But, guys, you don't need to go on some sort of crazy juice cleanse to support your gut health. Anyway, I'm going to kind of go off on that tangent. But, whatever. So there's influencers out there and I feel like they're, everybody's like getting into like the gut health trend, but we need to see where these claims are coming from on Instagram and also like what it actually is because like what Instagram says gut health is, 
is kind of completely different than what like science says it is. So I do just want to like help you guys out too in like evaluating what you see on social media and looking at it from a research perspective. I teach in my class, um, Right now I teach Introduction to Psychology at my university and we go through, you know, like evaluating research, the scientific method. Like we say, okay, are these claims valid? And then we go through why are they valid or why are they not valid? So we're going to kind of talk about that too. So your gut is composed of tens of trillions of microorganisms. You have, okay, how creepy, but also cool is that? Like right now, like you have a bunch of like trillions of bacteria that are just kind of vibing in your intestines and your entire gut. Um, and it's, it's pretty crazy. It is absolutely growing all the time um, and changing all the time too. You're actually born with a certain um, set of like micro, like my, microbes and organisms and this is actually gets transmitted from your mother when you are going through the birth canal so babies who actually have a c-section they have been shown to have different microbial compositions and actually don't have as strong of an immune system and that's because your gut is so important for immunity it's obviously necessary for digestion right you know you learn in fifth grade the digestive system it starts in your mouth and then it goes and you poop and everything in between there is all digestion so obviously your gut health is important for digestion and your microbiome but also it's a super big protective factor against pathogens and viruses and bacteria your gut is more it carries a greater strength of your immunity than does like, you know, your other like lymphatic system and stuff. And of course, like all these other systems, like your immune system and everything and your lymphatic system, they all play a role in your immunity, but your gut health is actually essential to immunity. And if you don't have a strong microbiome, you're going to have a harder time fighting off illnesses. Um, there's been several studies that have shown this. Also, I do want to say during this, like I have a ton of references right now listed on the side of this like gut health document that I have because I wrote like an honors thesis in undergrad about this, but I'm not going to list every single name of the studies. Um, if you want to know who wrote the studies, please shoot me an email after this, but I will list some of the names of the studies um, as we're getting into the more important and like more like big studies that we're going to talk about. So anyway, also your microbiome is important for growth. It's super important for, you know, not only physical growth, but also mental growth. And we're going to talk about that in a second and inflammation. So your gut health, um, it can contribute to levels of inflammation in your body and vice versa. When you are feeling inflamed or you have an injury, it actually signals to your gut to make microbial changes. Um, and also it, is very important for nutrient absorption, right? So we eat all this food every day and it can only get absorbed if you have the right bacteria in there and your gut is happy. Also, it is important for mental health, my favorite. Guys, if you have not learned about the gut-brain connection, you, your mind is about to be blown. Like I, when I learned about this years ago, I was like, whoa, this is the coolest thing, right? So we all have this experience of like having butterflies in our tummy, or if you're an athlete, like I know many of us who are listening are, um, you know, before games or races, we get a stomach ache. Maybe we have the runner's poops. Maybe we literally absolutely poop our pants. And I have no shame in saying that that has happened to me. I was a gymnast growing up and I spent the entire morning before a gymnastics meet on the toilet. Um, so yeah, it was kind of, it was bad. And I knew it was from the nerves. And also 
it's important in constipation. So sometimes stress can cause constipation. So right, we know that when we're stressed out, maybe we're not pooping regularly or maybe our tummies hurt. Um, so yeah, those butterflies in your stomach that you feel when you see your crush, there is a physiological reason for that. And it's really, really cool. So the reason why our mental health and our gut health are so connected is because the gut has tons of nerves, which are connections of neurons, which are the cells of our nervous system. I know kind of a lot of nervous and neuron words, um, but it's connected to our brain through a bunch of nerves. So the most prominent nerve that we see connecting the brain and the gut is called the vagus nerve. So if you've ever I'll kind of go into like what the vagus nerve is a little bit, I guess, but the vagus nerve, it's responsible for kind of like, you know, um, feeling like it can cause you to feel dizzy. Um, it is really responsible for like digestive processes. So if you ever have the stomach bug and you're about to get sick or about to use the bathroom, sometimes you'll get really, really dizzy. It's because the vagus nerve, when it's compressed by something, um, it can cause you to feel lightheaded. Also, another thing that is pretty common, if you've ever like fainted because you like see the sight of blood or you get a shot or something, AKA me, I faint when I get shots, LOL. But it's something called vasovagal syncope. And this is when your vagus nerve is actually overstimulated and you faint or you black out for a little bit. And it's kind of a normal reaction um, to certain phobias and everything. But anyway, this nerve, right, is connecting your gut and your brain. And bacteria from your gut actually go into your nerves and it goes up to your brain and vice versa. So let's say you have certain bacteria that are trying to communicate with your brain something um they'll go into that nerve up to your brain and likewise so if you're anxious about something you know you're going to have more a physiological reaction happening in your brain and it's going to send down to your gut um and it's going to say hey there is something wrong and your gut's going to say oh my gosh like let's absolutely blow up the toilet or let's get sick or something like that right um so that's just kind of a bi-directional pathway of our gut and our brain, how they talk to each other. And um, it's a super important pathway. So of course there's, you know, like I said, tens of trillions of microorganisms in our gut. Um, there's bad bacteria, bad organisms, and there's also good bacteria. I'm sure you guys have heard about these if you're familiar with the gut-brain connection, but good bacteria, they are, you know, they're found in like the lactobacillus spirit, uh, species um, and bad bacteria this is the type of bacteria you can think of if you get food poisoning so a lot of it is like enterobacteria there's also enterovirus which uh, causes the stomach bug so if you ever had you know a stomach bug like that but bad bacteria is typically found you know in like spoiled foods or there's other ways that bad bacteria can grow but we're all born with bad and good bacteria but it's what we do on the outside with our brains, our bodies, what we feed ourselves that encourages the balance of good bacteria to outweigh the bad bacteria and vice versa. So how we treat our guts impacts if you have more good bacteria or bad bacteria. So good bacteria, we're gonna talk about different foods that can kind of feed these bacteria. Good bacteria are obviously good. These are the type of bacteria that we want in our gut. It helps protect us against sickness. So if you do get food poisoning, it may not be as severe if you have more good bacteria in your gut than bad bacteria. Um, it's, 
It's implicated, like I said, in immunity and digestion. It's implicated in mood too. So uh, there's a bunch of really cool studies on this, but I'm going to quickly go into good bacteria and inflammation. So inflammation is associated with symptoms of poor mental health like depression. Um, it is one of the biggest markers of depression that we see also with like a shrunken hippocampal volume and other physiological signs of depression, right? But uh, increased inflammation it has an association to both depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, anxiety, all sorts of mental illness. Um, and by tear rate, this is a short-chain fatty acid, and it's absorbed by your gut bacteria, and it reduces inflammation. So we need enough by tear rate in, um, in our bodies in order to reduce inflammation, which we don't want a lot of inflammation, obviously. Um, and this is like, by tear rate is found in foods such as like fruits and veggies, seeds, nuts, whole grains, legumes. Um, but also, which is really cool, bacteria is actually found to create new brain cells, which is just absolutely amazing. It aids in neurogenesis. So, you know, it helps us feel better emotionally. It helps our cognitive functioning. It's amazing. But you cannot make bacteria without the good bacteria in your gut. So you need good bacteria in order to make this uh, short chain fatty acid that does reduce that inflammation and can impact your mental health. So if your gut bacteria is off, you might feel a little bit sadder and be like, okay, could it be inflammation? What is it? Um, but there's a bunch of other connections too that we'll talk about. I keep saying like, oh, we'll talk about that, but there's like so much, you guys. Like I read an entire book and I highly recommend it called The Psychobiotic Revolution. Um, and it just details all of this research and it's fascinating. So I'll put a link to that book in this description, but anyway off my tangent. So without enough good bacteria, you cannot absorb bacteria as well. So you could be eating all of the good foods, right? You could be eating all the fruits and veggies and legumes and nuts and seeds and it's fantastic and you say, oh, I'm, I'm eating anti-inflammatory foods, but if your bacteria is off, you're not going to absorb it and it's not going to do anything. So short-chain fatty acids also produces serotonin and GABA. So serotonin is obviously our happy hormone. I'm sure you guys have heard of this before. It is what improves our mood. And a lot of people, you know, make jokes like, oh, that just aided in my serotonin or whatever. We want more serotonin. It also helps produce GABA. And GABA is an inhibitory, inhibitory neurotransmitter. This means that it helps reduce the activity of our nervous system and helps calm us down. So we think of more GABA um, in less anxious people. So you want more GABA in serotonin. And that's produced by short-chain fatty acids, which are produced by your gut bacteria. So again, you want good gut bacteria to produce these short-chain fatty acids. Um, another relationship that we see between gut bacteria and mental health is that taking probiotics actually reduces one's risk for mental illness, such as depression, anxiety, Alzheimer's, and autism spectrum disorder, which is absolutely fascinating. So that just shows that adding in good bacteria to your gut can actually reduce your risk for certain mental illnesses. And that study was done by Ansari and colleagues in 2020, and they conduct really great research. So I highly recommend checking out their research. So um, another relationship we see is that bifidiobacterium, lactobacillus, and lactococcus are good bacteria. And these actually, um, people with high levels of these strains of bacteria tend to have better mental health. They tend to have less symptoms of anxiety, less stress over longitudinally, like 
over the course of their life. So a longitudinal study is one, you know, that you um, measure time and time again over long periods of time. And these good bacteria actually come from fermented foods like kombucha, if you think about it. And then E-lactosporacy, I wrote an entire um, NSF grant for this, or like grant proposal during my undergraduate. Um, this is actually implicated in schizophrenia. So people with high levels of E-lactosporacy, which is a bad bacteria, it like eats away at your good bacteria. And people with high levels of E-lactosporacy actually had a predisposition to develop schizophrenia. So there's this whole correlation between that. Um, but as we can see, there are a, there's so many more connections that we see between bacterial composition and mental health, but there is a huge relationship between good bacteria and mental health and bad bacteria and how it can hurt mental health. But the goal is to have balance. And so our gut likes a balance of good to bad bacteria. We don't want to eliminate the all of our bad bacteria, right? It does serve a purpose. It does give us biodiversity. But if your gut bacteria is unbalanced, and the bad bacteria exceeds, so if there's more bad than good, um, that means your bacteria are sad. You're not going to be having these good bacteria benefits. Your gut's going to be unhealthy. You're going to be experiencing symptoms of poor gut health, and we're going to get into symptoms a little bit later. Um, but basically the goal is to have greater alpha diversity, which it's called, which is alpha means like the good bacteria. So we want good bacteria to outweigh the bad bacteria. Also, diet influences our gut health because what we eat actually feeds certain bacteria. So our good bacteria, they feed on certain foods and they're starved when you eat other foods. Then certain foods, like other foods, actually feed your bad bacteria and they starve your good bacteria. Um, so some foods that have been implicated that, you know, feed your good bacteria, they they like to feast on this stuff. It's, stuff that you consider in the Mediterranean diet. So whole grains, legumes, omega-3, fatty acids, um, fruits and vegetables are really, really good. Fermented foods, this all feeds your good bacteria. Um, and it does starve your bad bacteria. They don't like Mediterranean food. They don't like those, you know, whole foods. They actually get very hungry and they kind of die off when you eat like a Mediterranean diet. Foods that feed the bad bacteria are highly, highly processed foods like Beef jerky, actually, which is kind of funny, is a huge, like, implicator, um, or it's a huge implicator. Um, your bad bacteria really, really like it, but, um, and also sugar, refined sugar, refined carbs, and stuff like that. Okay, I'm saying all this, right, that, you know, there's these carbs and stuff and sugars and processed foods that feed your bad bacteria and starve your good bacteria. This is not saying you should not eat that, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later when I do your Q&A. You need a balance of stuff, right? Like I said, we need balance. This is not saying only eat whole foods and completely starve away your bad bacteria. No, this is saying have a balance because the consequences of underfueling your gut are greater than you eating sugars and beef jerky and whatever else you want. So we're going to talk about that in a bit. So anyway, like I said, um, the processed foods, um, eating them in ex excess. So this isn't just, you know, maybe a few processed food items a day. This is like excessive processed food. So like, you know, the standard Western diet that we see, it feeds the bad bacteria, starves the good bacteria. Also stress influences gut health. And like I said, butterflies in our tummy, right? It makes the gut more permeable. So what this means is that your bacteria can go in and out of the gut faster, your nutrients go in and out of the gut faster, 
And what happens is your good bacteria kind of leave. They're like the first ones to go. Your bad bacteria are sticky. They like to stay in your gut. So when your gut's more permeable, your good bacteria are like, peace out, I don't want to be here. And your bad bacteria are like, yeah, that's right, I'm strong, I'm staying in this gut, I'm sticky, they're lazy. So they like to stay in your gut, and then the bad bacteria does outweigh the good bacteria. I'm saying bacteria a lot. Yeah, it's kind of the word of this podcast. That would just be my podcast title bacteria. Just kidding. Nobody would listen. (laughs) Okay. So we kind of talked about, you know, when you have an overabundance of bad bacteria to good bacteria or dysbiosis or unbalance, here are some symptoms that you could look out for. So signs of an unhealthy gut are, you know, a lot of gas, like bad smelling gas too, like terrible. Um, not that I experienced that or anything, lol. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh yeah, never mind. Bloating, bloating is a huge one. Diarrhea, constipation, having acid reflux, a bad mood. That is a sign of a unhappy gut. You could be depressed, anxious. Um, also, unhealthy gut is associated with type 1 diabetes, autoimmune dysfunction, Hashimoto's disease. It can, you can have trouble sleeping with an unhealthy gut, brain fog, Um, multiple sclerosis is also associated with an unhealthy gut, arthritis, chronic pain. These are all symptoms, um, like some of them are excessive, you know, like autoimmune and stuff and chronic pain, but they are associated with an unhealthy gut and are all signs to look out for. Again, those could mean other things, so take this with a grain of salt, but those are just some symptoms. So, Diet quality and mental health have been extensively studied. There's this researcher named um, Jacka, and he has conducted multiple studies over how our diet influences our gut. And there's a whole field of research called nutritional psychiatry. And this is like my sweet spot in research and like what I want to do my dissertation on and everything and how it affects the microbiome. So there's been some really cool studies that Jacka has done. One of them was a dietary intervention for those with depression. So these people, uh, they came to the study, they had depression for a very long time, they've tried all the treatments, right? They've tried meds, they've tried therapy, and their depression was not going away, and how hard would that be? Um, What they found was after, so they did a dietary intervention for one month, that was the only thing that was changed. Then their control group, they had, they did not have a dietary intervention, instead they were like on a wait list. Um, and they found that those with depression with the dietary intervention and they incorporated foods, you know, that promote good bacteria growing, they had an improved mood and this controlled for BMI, self-efficacy, smoking, and physical activity. And that showed that the dietary intervention, um, was actually an effective treatment for those experiencing depression. And again, like I said, it was all foods that promote good bacteria. Uh, another study that was really cool was that Sousa and colleagues in 20 or 2017, no, 2007, guys, I cannot read or talk today. Um, it was a study done on rats. So they had two groups of rats. Uh, one group of rats was fed with a high sucrose diet. And this was like trying to be synonymous with like a very high sugar, high processed diet that we see in westernized cultures. So America and then her other group of rats, they were fed with the normal diet. And it was the same, like, kibble, the same little pebbles. Um, some of them just had the, well, in the sucrose group, the experimental condition, they had more sucrose in there, obviously. And they measured their mood, their microbiome, etc. So what they found after 
a month of that high sucrose diet is the rats with higher sucrose diet actually had more anxiety and this was completely controlled study so I've done animal research before um, with mice and rats and I do I don't do research on animals anymore I don't prefer it but I do really like how controlled the conditions are and what you can do and this was a very controlled study and so the rats did demonstrate more anxiety and you're probably like how do rats have anxiety but there's like really cool things that we do to like look at rat anxiety and it's like I mean that sounds kind of sad but there's all these different tests that we do like how long they spend in the light um, how long they give up when they're swimming it, there's just all these weird tests but look it up if you want Anyway, so that just shows, again, that sucrose, high sucrose, actually um, was influencing the mood of these rats, which is crazy. And then, again, Jacka and colleagues in 2011 found that those who had consumed a westernized diet predisposed uh, individuals of developing bipolar disorder and so as you know bipolar disorder or maybe you don't know it's a disorder a mental disorder characterized by extreme like mania and hyperactivity and then the other extreme is experiencing depression like really really low depression and you kind of cycle between those two and like he said uh like jacka found is that um, those who consumed a lot of refined carbs, salt, red meat, processed fats, and did not consume enough whole grains or vegetables, healthy fats, and whole grains actually had a greater risk of developing bipolar disorder, and they did do a lot of statistical controls for this first, like confounds, you know, like BMI, exercise, etc. So that was also a very, oh, they also controlled for socioeconomic status, which I do think that is so important too, because that is a huge um, factor in the gut microbiome and mental health as well. So that's another very interesting study is that, you know, westernized diet, it seems to kind of be the culprit here. And the Mediterranean diet is best for your gut. Okay, another really cool study is by Tillish and colleagues in 2017. So what they did is they had two groups of conditions. They were all women, um, and they had one group of women, and they consumed fermented milk for one month. And it was all at the same time of day. So they all drank fermented milk in the morning, standardized meals. Like, they just went about their normal meals and stuff, but they did control for the meals after running the analyses and everything. And then the other group of women, they were not to consume fermented milk. They were just to consume normal milk that was not fermented. That was their control condition. Um, also, a lot of these studies are like for a month just because it's pretty typical in psychological research to do month-long studies because after that, the rates of attrition, which are participant dropout, are pretty high. Um, so what they found is that the women who consumed the fermented milk, AKA fermented foods, you know, like to feed, or your good bacteria feed on, they experience deep, this is super cool, guys. Okay, I like geek out over this. So they looked at their brains in fMRIs and they showed them emotional stimuli. So, you know, like a crying scene from a movie or an angry face on a screen. And they looked at different activation of their brain regions. And so what they found is that the women who consumed the fermented milk had decreased emotional reactivity in the frontal lobe, the prefrontal cortex, the parahippocampal gyrus, and the temporal cortices region of the brain. 
following negative emotional stimuli. So they were shown, you know, somebody crying or somebody angry at them or a sad scene and they had decreased reactivity in all of these different cortices of the brain. And you're probably like, what the heck do these cortices do? Like, what is going on? These are basically parts of the brain that are associated with, um, you know, emotional reactivity and stuff. And we want a little bit less reactivity in there because then it doesn't stimulate the HPA axis as much. And again, I will talk about the HPA axis in momentarily when I get into questions, but it is the stress response, right? So we want lower reactivity because it doesn't stress the body out as much. So isn't that absolutely wild? And they also found was that their microbiomes had significantly changed. Their alpha diversity had increased. Their my their microbiomes were more diverse. They had more good bacteria than bad bacteria. And it was all just, it's so super cool. So not only were their microbiomes different, but the way that their brain processed emotions were different, which is just incredible. And what's even more incredible is that your diet, when you are pregnant, can impact your children's mental health. So Jacket and colleagues has conducted so many different studies on prenatal mental health and um, children's behavior. And he's conducted quite a few studies, but one I'm going to focus on is in 2013. So what he found was that even if you consume more processed foods, more westernized diets, um, even before getting pregnant, so this is like six months before pregnancy, the children of those parents who consume the more westernized diet versus a Mediterranean diet, they actually had more externalizing behavior. So this is like aggression, um, you know, acting out and everything and internalizing behaviors, which is in psychology, what we call like anxiety, withdrawal, depression and stuff. So the children had poor mental health from the mother consuming more processed foods and the children were actually fed standardized foods after giving birth. Um, and they did control for the kids' diets after giving birth. So this wasn't like, you know, you could always think of like, oh, well, maybe it was the kids' diet that impacted their mental health, right? If a mom's eating more processed food, maybe they're more likely to give the kid that processed food, but that wasn't the case in this because you can do a lot of really cool statistical procedures to control for this. I know as much as I talk about stats and how hard it is sometimes, I do appreciate it and how we can control for these cool things and answer these big questions. So a lot of you guys had questions before I get into the Q&A section on what the gut microbiome does to eating disorders and what eating disorders do to the gut microbiome. And there is a huge field of research on this and I think it's absolutely fascinating. Um, so one of the worst things you can do for your gut microbiome is not eat enough. And we're going to look into some studies that kind of support that, but there's so many out there. And there's even like, I, there's a couple books out there too on like, you know, undernourishment and the microbiome and um, what people with anorexia have, like their gut microbiome composition and also people with bulimia and et cetera. So there's just all sorts of different literature in this, but some interesting studies that I wanted to point out that I thought were really well done and also very interesting points. Um, so Kleeman and colleagues in 2015, they looked at the microbiome of individuals with anorexia nervosa. So they were diagnosed before they were treated, um, during their treatment, and then after they were treated. So this was a longitudinal study. It lasted over a few years. Um, when the girls were, this was all females, so when they were struggling with um, anorexia and they were going, th they were actively engaging in their eating disorder. So they were, you know, 
they were experiencing symptoms and they were dealing with that, um, they had reduced alpha diversity in their gut microbiome. So the good bacteria was gone, was very, very, very low, and the bad bacteria was abundant when um, they weren't eating enough and when they were engaging in eating disorder behaviors. During treatment, the balance started to increase, and so there was a little bit more good bacteria. Then, after they weight restored, even for years after they weight restored, their alpha diversity had significantly increased, their good bacteria had outweighed the bad bacteria, and they, it, it's incredible. Their entire gut microbiome was restored after weight restoration, after mental restoration too. So they were not only recovered from their eating disorders or in a good place in recovery, they were weight restored, but their microbiomes had changed. Their good bacteria were there. They could process those nutrients again. Their immune systems were good, right? So we think of all these effects of underfueling, um, and we say like, oh, we're cold all the time, or maybe our immune systems are down, um, maybe you lose your period, but a lot of it does relate to your microbiome, these little critters that live in your tummy, right? Maybe we have poor immune systems from underfueling because we deplete our gut microbiome so much. Um, or maybe underfueling, um, you know, since it depletes your gut microbiome so much and your good bacteria, it is related to, you know, your hypothalamus. It's part of the HPA axis and that's the part of the brain that helps control temperature. So when you don't have enough good bacteria, you can't positively interact with certain areas of your brain as well. And so those are some of the symptoms that we see with underfueling. And of course, there's, a, there's some research out there, but a lot more needs to be done. And hopefully I can add to this literature someday um, because I just think there's so many interesting studies out here. Okay, another common experience that people with eating disorders have is um, an addictive tendency towards this. And eating disorders kind of follow the same brain, like dopamine pathways, as like substance abuse disorders do. So somebody who has experienced like a quote-unquote addiction to weight loss or also trigger warning if this is hard for you to listen to please take care of yourself and um, fast forward in this episode um so anyway um a lot of people like i said who have eating disorders they tend to get a almost like a high from the weight loss or from the restriction right at first it's really hard because you're depriving yourself of food but then it gets easier and easier with time and it's very very hard and your brain kind of like almost twisted around to like wanting to restrict if that makes sense um and this is just you know quote unquote under fueling addiction um this actually shows up in the microbiome too which is super interesting so when you start to underfuel, it actually changes your gut bacteria like i said there's less good bacteria so there are less good bacteria in your gut that stop cortisol. So let me go into this really, really quick. So cortisol, right, it's our stress hormone. Cortisol is produced by our HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So the hypothalamus, when it experiences stress, it secretes something called adrenocorticotropin-releasing hormone, ACTH. Then this triggers um, the pituitary gland to release corticotropin-releasing hormones, CRH. And then this tells the adrenal glands, right? So if you think of adrenaline, to release cortisol. Cortisol is released from your HPA axis. I know it's kind of like a lot of terms right now, but it's going into it. So it's released and released and released. And then, you know, the body doesn't like cortisol. Cortisol's toxic. It's terrible for our bodies when we're not actually, don't need to be stressed. Um, when there's a lot of cortisol, 
the hypothalamus goes, whoa, um, there's way too much cortisol here. We're going to stop this production. And the hypothalamus is like, okay, cortisol, you can stop being produced now. And it shuts down the system in a normal brain. But when the HPA axis is dysregulated, what happens is the hypothalamus never shuts down the cortisol production. Um, there's certain receptors that don't uptake the cortisol. So cortisol is just toxically running through your body and it's causing a lot of different health consequences. Anyway, that is what a dysregulated HPA axis is. Um, so anyway, when you start to underfuel, um, the good bacteria that actually helps, help the hypothalamus say, stop cortisol, don't be produced anymore. Um, it dysregulates your HPA axis. So you don't have that bacteria anymore to tell cortisol to stop. Um, and what happens is when there's a lot of cortisol, it keeps your body in fight or flight. And when you're in fight or flight, your hunger is suppressed. And the fight or flight, instead of slowing down, and the, um, like it's supposed to, it keeps increasing. So your hunger keeps decreasing. If this is making sense, I hope it is. I feel like I'm kind of like lecturing right now, but like I'm just trying to like help you guys understand the science behind this because it is very interesting. So basically, to put it in short terms, underfueling leads to less good bacteria that helps your cortisol stop. When you have too much cortisol, it keeps your body in fight or flight and suppresses your appetite significantly. Um, so that's kind of where like the addictive underfueling comes from, right? It's physiological. Your gut bacteria are implicated in this and it's fascinating. So um, yeah, that's another really interesting study. And that was done by uh, Saro and colleagues in 2008. So yeah, very, very, very um, interesting here. Okay, this is also so interesting. So a lot of microbial research is associated with like fecal um, transplants. So fecal microbiota, trans microbiota transplants, which are called FMTs. Um, this is when you literally get cleared out. So, you know, maybe you go through a colonoscopy prep, um, you get your intestines completely drained. So there's no poop in you at all. I know this is kind of getting gross TMI, but I don't think there's anything, there's no such thing as TMI in my book. So um, then what happens after you get your poop removed from you, you get somebody else's poop in you. You get a microbiome transplant, basically, um, fecal transplant. So literally it's what it sounds like. You get somebody else's poop and it changes your microbiome. And there have been all sorts of different studies with like mice and rats that show anxious mice who get their microbiome swapped with non-anxious mice actually decrease their anxiety. And likewise, non-anxious mice who get the microbiome of an anxious mouse have anxiety afterwards. It's very interesting. Um, so yeah, anyway, they have looked at microbiome transplants, fecal microbiota transplants on individuals with anorexia nervosa. So these are more case studies. So, you know, it's not huge. There's not a huge sample yet, but there is more being done right now. Um, and they found that so there were people, a group of people who had anorexia and they kept relapsing. They were not experiencing any remission in their eating disorders and it had been going on for about 20 years. They actually got a fecal microbiota transplant and they found after the transplant, their weight was restored and they didn't engage in any eating disorder behaviors or thoughts a year later, which is absolutely wild. This was done by both Dick Clerk and uh, Prochif, wait, 
Prochis Kava. Yes, finally. Okay, pronounce it. Prochis Kava. Something like that. Okay, in 2019. And it's just wild. So, like, literally, they tried every single treatment. And it was after the microbiome, like, microbiota transplant that they finally weight restored after 20 years. So, guys, like, this is absolutely like wild. So, right? There's all sorts of microbial like microbial like influences in any mental illness, even eating disorders, which you think uh, yeah. So anyway, I could go off. I love research. I love this stuff. So, very interesting. Um again, too, another cool study by Augusti and colleagues in 2021 found that um bacteriads uniformis. So this is found in probiotics. Um this is a probiotic supplement that you can get. Um, giving this probiotic supplement for six months actually reduced symptoms of binge eating disorder, reduced kind of the pathway activation associated with binging, which is, again, cool, shows that the gut microbiome is implicated in other sorts of eating disorders like binge eating disorder. Another fun fact before I get into q and I know I have a lot of athletes here that listen to this podcast, um, and athletes have a different microbiome than the normal population. So Clark and colleagues in 2014 found that athletes actually have a greater diversity of good gut bacteria, greater alpha diversity, and it actually increases, they also had increased absorption of protein, which is super important as an athlete, right? We're working our muscles, we're running, we're um, you know, lifting weights and stuff. We're trying to get stronger. And the alpha diversity of athletes actually did increase their ability to um, absorb protein, which is just super cool. So little fun fact, next time you see you're an athlete, you can say, I also have a very diverse microbiome. Yeah, super cool. So yeah, anyway, those are some of the big studies I wanted to touch on today. There are so many more. Like I said, I'm going to leave a link to that book because it is one of my favorites. I've read quite a few books on the gut-brain connection, microbiome, mental health, etc. Um, but this one I really, really did value a lot. And so if you're interested in reading like hundreds of more studies in detail, I highly recommend this book. And they really explain it in a really easy to understand way. Um, so I, I personally really love it. Okay, now getting into probably what you guys came here to listen for, which is the Q&A section. So I got lots of great questions here, um, and I'm super excited to answer. So one of the biggest questions, most frequent questions, I think like 25 people asked this question, was what is the impact of stress on digestion? I also get a lot of DMs about this too, anxiety on digestion, stress on digestion. So stress has a lot of influences on our digestive system. When you're stressed, right, we experience a tummy ache. Sometimes we don't feel as hungry if we're stressed about an exam, right? Sometimes like if you're going through a really, really hard time, you're like, the last thing I want to do is eat. Or if it's before a big race, if you're a runner and you're like, oh, my tummy hurts so bad. I really don't want to eat anything, but you know you have to, right? Um, and it's hard. Sometimes it's really hard. Um, Sometimes when we're stressed, we experience bloating, cramping, gas, constipation, diarrhea. So again, all those symptoms that kind of signify like there's something going on with your little gut microbiomes there. There's something wrong in our gut. Um, so what causes that is the question. Um, and this is also explained by physiology. So the stress response is triggered um, and activated in the central nervous system. Again, the spinal cord and the brain. Um, 
and this is triggered by the HPA axis, right? So like I said, hypothalamus, which is part of your brain, um, pituitary adrenal axis produces cortisol, cortisol's toxic, we kind of went over that, um, and obviously, like I said before, spinal cord and brain that's connected to the gut, right? It's connected to our enteric nervous system. Your gut is actually called your second brain, quote unquote, and it's actually, I love it. <laughs> Um, anyway, overactivation of our central nervous system in the fight or flight, actually, um, the first thing that it thinks of is fight or flight is survival, right? So it's going to halt processes that are not immediately needed for survival. And digestion is kind of sort of one of them. Um, so if you think about it this way, like when your body's stressed, whether it's about an exam, a race or something, it's going to do something to your gut. It's connected to your gut. Your brain says, I'm anxious right now, I'm stressed, and it's communicating with your gut saying, we're anxious, we're stressed, do something about it. And so it'll either kind of expel things from you saying, oh, maybe there's a toxin in me, maybe I need to poo my pants, or vomit, or maybe I'm going to get really, really constipated. So if you've ever traveled, you know, it's, and you're like anxious about it, sometimes you get really constipated. Um, and those are so normal, because your gut and your brain are talking, and your gut your brain's just trying to protect you. It's like, it doesn't know that you're stressed about your race coming up tomorrow or an exam or asking your crush out on its first date. It just knows I'm stressed and I don't know how much effort I can put into digestion right now, right? I need to focus on fighting the stressor. So basically, stress impacts your digestion. It can constipate you, give you diarrhea, and it's a totally normal thing. Um, there are a lot of different stress reduction techniques that actually reduce that GI distress. I can make a whole another episode on like mental tips to like reduce like the stress tummy we like to call it. Um, but yeah, there's all sorts of things, but it's totally normal. And I understand because I get it too, like severely. <laughs> okay, second question. How does sugar affect the gut brain connection? This is a question that was asked quite frequently too. So as I mentioned before in a study that showed like high sucrose diet, increased anxiety, um, there are quite a few studies that show that sugar does dysregulate the gut bacteria balance because sugar feeds the bad bacteria um, and it leads to poor mental health and increased inflammation. Those are all associations that we see with refined sugar and gut health and mental health. Um, and so the more sugar that you eat, if you're just eating a ton of sugar, right, it feeds your bad bacteria which are associated with, you know, more mental illnesses such as depression and anxiety. But I know what you're thinking right now. Some of you are saying, oh, refined sugars cause bad mental health. No, this is not an all or nothing thing because underfueling has a worse impact on your gut microbiome than does consuming sugar. These studies are looking at sugar like huge quantities, right? It is okay to eat sugar. I'm literally just feasting on my Scandinavian swimmers over here. Like I eat sugar and yes, it feeds your bad bacteria. And at the same time, it doesn't feed it enough to make a significant difference unless you're consuming it in excess. So everything in moderation, that is what your gut wants. It wants balance. It wants, you know, homeostasis. It wants sugar because I mean, it wants sugar, it wants whole grains, you know, healthy stuff. Mediterranean diet is its happy place. And you want to be eating, you know, a lot of that stuff. And also, it's okay to eat a lot of sugar one day or 
to incorporate sugar into your diet um, because I do. I eat, like I, I always promote on here, I eat two desserts a day. My gut, it's happy and it's like, it's okay. So this is not saying to not eat sugar. This is just saying it is associated with poor gut health. So if you find yourself consuming sugar in excess and you notice your gut is not happy, maybe check in with a dietitian or something like that. Um, because also under fueling, if cutting out sugar from your diet causes you to underfuel, your gut will be a lot more upset with you then. Um, because you know, it'll be constipated. You'll have diarrhea. It'll be, it's bad. So Anyway, yeah, that's not an all or nothing thing, but yes, sugar does impact our gut health. Okay, tips to improve gut health. There are a lot of different tips that I have, um, but again, if you are experiencing gut distress yourself, please seek medical attention for, like a professional because like I said, I am not a doctor yet, but here are the tips that I know from evidence-based research in my field. Um, Pre and probiotics, you should be taking those. And I'll talk a little bit about what pre and probiotics are in just a little bit because I had a question about that. Also, another tip I have is to reduce stress, but that's kind of impossible, right? Okay, not impossible, but it's hard. I know, we live in a stressful world and we're constantly being pulled in so many different directions and we're athletes and we have to get stressed and we're students and we're going to jobs and we're constantly stressed. Um, but really trying to focus on that stress management, you know, so doing something for self-care, doing mindfulness, doing something that you love, taking time to breathe, it can really help your gut health because the more time you spend in that stress state, the more stressed your gut is, the more unhappy it is, you're going to get those negative symptoms. So it's really, it's really important to try and like just manage those stress levels in order to help your gut health. Eat a variety of foods. So this means, you know, don't eat just one thing, right? Your gut likes diversity. And that is like the whole message of this pot, like episode is that your gut likes its diversity. So yes, eat your whole grains, your fruits, your vegetables, your omega-3s, salmon, yum. Um, eat a lot of diversity and eat your sugars and things that make you happy. Because here's the thing, the stress of restricting a food that you're craving is worse for your gut health than is eating the thing that you're craving, okay? So eat everything and in moderation. I'm not saying only eat fruits. I'm not saying only eat sugar. Eat everything in moderation. I'm just, I'm so worried that when I like put these things out here that people are gonna be like, oh, she told me to just eat whatever, all this. And I'm like, no, that's not what I'm saying, okay? Like just do everything in moderation. Yes, these are tips. I'm not, yeah, so anyway, please just, again, take this with a light heart. Um, also, eating enough, this is another tip I have, eat enough food. You don't want to restrict your gut. You don't want to deprive your gut bacteria. You don't want to stress your gut out, okay? Your little microbiomes, they don't need to be stressed. We are already stressed as we are living in the 21st century after a global pandemic, okay? Our little bacteria, they don't need to be stressed as well, causing all those bad symptoms. Get enough sleep. Sleep deprivation stresses your gut out. It causes dysbiosis, bad for your gut. Um, also, try to avoid antibiotics when possible. Antibiotics actually... Yes, they kill the bad bacteria that may be causing an infection. They also kill the good bacteria too. So just try to be mindful of antibiotics. Avoid smoking. Smoking is terrible for your gut. Um, and exercise, that's another tip I have. Exercise is super good for gut health. As we saw, 
athletes have the most amazing alpha diversity in their gut. So get exercise. It's shown to really boost that good bacteria. Um, it definitely helps in digestion and with nutrient absorption and protein absorption, like I said. So definitely get exercise. Um, however that looks like for you, whatever form of movement that you like the most. Let's see. What is the difference between pre and probiotics? Oh, I love this question. Okay. Probiotics. These are the thing. Okay. So if you think of your gut, um, like all those bacteria, right? Probiotics are the actual organisms that you put into your gut and it adds to your flora. So this is like putting bacteria into your gut. So think about like fermented foods, right? So you can take these through like, obviously supplements, you're literally putting new organisms into your back into your gut. Okay. So this is like saying, Oh, I really want more of this lactobacillus, uh, species or lactococcus species. And you take those species and you put them into your gut. That's probiotics, right? They're already active. They're already doing the work. Prebiotics are the things that those good bacteria actually feed on. So it's not an actual culture. It's not live. There's no living organism. It's just something that the living organisms of your gut like to eat, the good ones. So this is stuff that the good bacteria, you know, it feasts on, it thrives on. So if you feed them, they will grow type thing. Um, so taking prebiotics kind of just like starts to make your good bacteria grow and your bad bacteria kind of dissipate. So if you do find yourself not being able to consume a lot of variety of foods, or maybe you don't have access to some of these whole foods, or it's out of your budget, like take prebiotics because it will significantly help your gut health. Um, I, another way I like to think about this too is like, if you're thinking about a lawn, like a grass, right? And you're planting new soil or you're planting new grass. So the prebiotic or the probiotics is like if you were to dig a hole and you were to put a new patch of grass in there, right? It's already alive. It's already doing the work. It's already growing. It's ready. It looks pretty in your lawn. But the prebiotics is if you were to plant like fertilizer there and then you have, you know, all of the different like cells of the grass that are in the ground already and they just need to feed on that fertilizer in order to grow. So prebiotics, it's like the fertilizer. Probiotics, it's like if you're just planting the plant already. I hope that makes sense because I know it's a little bit confusing, you know, in today's world saying, take this prebiotic, take this probiotic. Also, look for third-party testing on those. Anyway, okay, another question. Does, okay, do certain things about your poop say anything about your gut health? Absolutely. And I love talking about this. <laughs> you guys are like, Sabrina, you're so gross. But you know, everybody poops, guys. Come on, just admit it. Like, you guys, like, you're all, you all poop. You all probably pooped before listening to this. You know, I don't know. I don't know what your poop schedules are like, but it is important to your gut health. So I am, I poop and I'm not ashamed. <laughs> that should be the title of this episode, actually. Okay. So if you have never seen the Bristol stool, stool tart, you should definitely check it out. It's like a whole graph, like what your poop looks like and what it tells you about your health. So just some things to pay attention to about your poop. Um, pay attention to the size, the shape, the consistency, the firmness, the color, the timing, how long it takes to poop. Are you taking like five seconds, 15 minutes? Um, and the smell. So you don't want your poop to be smelling so bad that it like absolutely, you know, sets off like a stink alarm type thing or like you know just absolutely just stays in your house for hours that could be a sign of an infection 
Um, you don't want it to take more than 10 to 15 minutes to successfully poop because that could indicate that you're a little bit constipated. Um, the ideal shape of your poop, this is going to get so, you guys are probably like, why are you going into this much detail? But I'm just being real guys. Okay. You want your poop according to gastroenterologists, including my aunt, who is a gastroenterologist, um, to be a log between four to eight inches. Um, you want it to have the consistency of like soft serve ice cream. Okay. You want it to just like come out. You don't want to have to strain for it. You don't want it to explode either. Right. So you want a nice, just like chill, you know, easy to pass poop that looks like ice cream. Okay. I know you're not going to eat a soft serve ice cream after this. So I'm sorry if I spoiled your appetite or if you're listening to this while you're eating. It is normal to poop three times a day to three times a week. Anything more or less than more or less than that could indicate um, IBS or other stuff. Um, yeah, so basically, just make sure it's you know good consistency. You don't want it to be too hard, too loose, too hard. And usually means constipated. Too loose usually means infection, inflammation, irritation, or you're really stressed. So another question is how how to tell if you're intolerant to a certain food and how long to wait to see if there's a food that's bothering you. Okay, this is a great question and uh, this is such a hard thing to answer because I feel like all over social media and stuff, people are like, oh, I'm this intolerant, I'm this intolerant. Oh, I just, I just realized it after like a week and I'm like, that's not how food intolerances work. So I guess like here is... I know that quite a few of the listeners of this podcast um, listen after coming off of a bout of underfueling. And after coming off a bout of underfueling, like, you will be intolerant to many foods because your microbiome's not used to it. Um, but here's some things, I guess, like, if you don't think, you know, you're underfueling anymore, if you're eating enough, if you um, feel like you're in good health but you might be intolerant to something, here are some things to pay attention to. Um, do you notice that you have certain symptoms, maybe say like you're really gassy after you eat a certain thing that day? If you notice this correlation, say, okay, well, it could be this or this or this, right? If it keeps happening, right? This can't be just like a three-time instance. This should be like over a month, right? Over a month, you're noticing this. Um, or maybe like over like, I don't know. I would say like after like 20 episodes that are not too severe. If they're very severe, definitely contact a doctor. Um, if you're like vomiting or have like, severe diarrhea or something like that. Um, definitely, I think one episode is enough to like figure out something or like two or three if it is connected to a certain food. Um, but I would wait about a month or so and you notice that. Then if you want to find out on your own, say, okay, how am I intolerant to this? I'd recommend removing certain things that you think might be causing it. So let's say you think you are intolerant to dairy or lactose, right? And you notice that you have really bad bloating and bad smelling gas maybe six hours after you eat a yogurt bowl for breakfast. And you'd be, okay. You could say, okay, so I'm eating this yogurt bowl. I'm eating this brand of yogurt. Maybe you eat a brand of yogurt that doesn't have lactase enzymes in it or doesn't have certain bacteria in it. So you change the brand of yogurt first. Say, is it lactose? Because certain brands of yogurt, like I love Chobani, um, Sky, or uh, Siggy's. They have bacteria species that actually break down the lactose. Um, so maybe you try a different brand of yogurt that doesn't have lactose in it. Um, and you say, okay, now I have a yogurt with cultures. Does it still hurt my stomach? If yes, try a different yogurt, dairy-free. 
If it still hurts your stomach, say, okay, maybe it's not the dairy. Try something else um, and just kind of play around with it. But if you really do think you're intolerant to something, I would definitely recommend contacting a medical professional and they can run some lab tests on you that um, can really help determine if you're intolerant to something. Okay, another question, why do people bloat after they run? Ooh, good question. Um, this definitely happens to some people, but this all has to do with the stress response. When we run, our body actually produces cortisol, right? Running is a stress reliever, but it does produce temporary cortisol and stress because your body thinks you're running from a bear temporarily. I know, it sounds crazy. It also does release, you know, positive, happy hormones um, and neurotransmitters, but it does release the stress hormone. Um, and so when we have heightened cortisol, right, for some people, our cortisol response, when our brain says we're stressed, our gut says, let's constipate you. Um, so if you get constipated when you have high cortisol, um, that's kind of that gut-brain connection there with the stress. But running in general for everybody, it increases gastric emptying, right? So it makes you want to poop. So it de like all of the food that you have in your GI tract, it goes right down to the bottom of you. And that's why you typically have to poop after you run or during your run. Um, but if the cortisol, if your gut's response to cortisol is to constipate you and you're running and your body's trying to flush all this food out of you, it gets stuck, right? Because your lower abdomen is like, oh, do not go to the bathroom, but your upper abdomen is like, you need to go. So all of the stuff just kind of gets welted up in the lower part of your stomach, your body retains water, and you do get a little bit bloated until you can usually wind down, decrease your stress, or go to the bathroom. But that is a great question. Okay, what causes fluctuations in hunger levels on different days? Great question. Hunger levels vary so much throughout each day, but it really does not change how much you need unless you know there's like a actual physiological factor that you do need certain more like foods on different days. Um, but you know, stress, right? Um, stress impacts our hunger levels significantly. So if we're more stressed, our body is like, oh, I'm don't really need good digestion right now because it's not essential for survival. So I'm not going to be as hungry. That does not mean you need less food though. So you still need to eat. Activity levels, of course. Sometimes if we have a really hard workout, if you're an athlete, it can actually decrease your hunger levels. Um, otherwise, some people find that they're more hungry when they're more active. Um, but it really depends on like how stressed your body gets from that activity that day. Hormones as well, your menstrual cycle, it definitely impacts hunger. So uh, women tend to get hungry right before a period. Um, they tend to be less hungry midway through their cycle just because of the hormone fluctuations and rise and fall in estrogen. Um, timing of meals too. If you eat big meals and you like three big meals versus like maybe like six to eight smaller meals, it actually does decrease your hunger levels a little bit because it like your body doesn't process food as quickly. It's more of like a slow emptying type thing. Um, so that can also impact hunger levels. But again, if your hunger levels are lower on certain days, it doesn't mean you need more or less food. It just means something's interfering with your hunger signals because your hunger hormones are like there. Um, they just aren't signaling the right way, if that makes sense. So make sure to definitely still feed yourself, even if you're not feeling that hungry, but there's all sorts of things. Okay, is kombucha effective? Yes, okay, I love kombucha, but you need to use a good brand. 
So there's lots of different studies that have shown that certain brands of kombucha don't really help. And these are the kombuchas that maybe like don't have the best like probiotics in them. Um, but the best kombucha brands will have like pre and probiotics. They are not effective as effective as taking like straight up probiotics, but it does help, right? It provides that good bacteria. Um, it helps your immune system. Um, it also helps regulate how much you poop. So that's pretty fun. Um, yes, it definitely does. Um, help your GI system. It can definitely help your immune system, mental health. There's been all sorts of studies that people who have, who take kombucha supplements actually have better mental health, which is kind of cool. Um, but of course, be careful of claims, right? Don't buy a product just because you see its advertisement. The most supported kombucha brands are Brew Doctor and GTs. And so those tend to have the best strains of bacteria in them. And also I love my poppy. Poppy's not a probiotic, it's a prebiotic, but I love it. Anyway, Poppy, please sponsor me. <laughs> um, are artificial sweeteners bad for gut health? Yes, they are. I am so sorry. For those of you girlies who love their sugar-free vanilla lattes at Starbucks, it is causing distress to your gut. Now, this is not saying do not never eat artificial sweeteners, okay? I love Diet Coke. It's so good. And like, I will drink Diet Coke and that is my vice, okay guys? Like, I love Diet Coke, it's good. And I know it's made of artificial sweeteners, but the taste is amazing. But I don't drink it in excess, right? I only drink it in moderation. So yes, um, consuming uh, pretty high amounts of artificial sweeteners are linked to gut dysbiosis. It kills the good bacteria. It also can't be digested. So it gives you gas and, and diarrhea or constipation. It actually is associated with increased uh, bacterial strains that are linked to metabolic disease. And what it does, it tricks the gut flora into thinking there's sugar when there's not. So what it does, it is it stresses your gut bacteria out. It says there's sugar when there's not, and it says we can't digest this, and it causes like distress. So in the long run, it is so much better to just get the full sugar vanilla syrup or whatever you're looking for. It is definitely bad for your gut health and gut dysbiosis but of course you can consume it in moderation like I said um so if you do really like sugar-free whatever like go for it just like don't overload your gut and know that like if you do have an upset tummy you probably know where it came from because sometimes my diet coke does make me gassy so <laughs> anyway okay um okay is it bad for your gut to eat normal foods not clean foods okay I don't like to give foods label like normal, clean, not clean, but if you're referring to like processed foods here and stuff, um, like I said, everything in moderation. Like I kind of touched on this earlier, but like, yes, there are links to processed foods and refined sugars and bad gut health, but that's consumed in excess, right? And your gut likes that diversity. So as I said before, consume what you're craving in moderation and make sure that you are just, you're trusting your gut, right? Honoring your cravings because you don't want to stress yourself out or your gut out by depleting yourself. Um, so I'm not going to say if it's bad or good. I'm going to say it's good if you have variety. Yeah. Okay. How to know, okay, this is the final question. How do I know if my gut is healthy or not? Oh, so many indicators here. So like I said, kind of when I was going over like symptoms of like bad gut health, um, kind of the opposite for good gut, gut health, right? 
you want to be pooping regularly, okay? Like, you want to be pooping three times a day to every three days, okay? That's, like, the normal range, and you don't want to be, like, distressed by your poop, okay? Go back to the poop question if you need to, a refresher. Um, If you have good energy, so... Uh, poor gut health is really associated with um, chronic fatigue, especially chronic fatigue syndrome. It's a very, uh, it's very high correlation with that. So if you don't feel yourself energized, um, it could be an indicator of poor gut health. Um, also normal gas and bloating. So you don't want to have excess gas. You don't want to have excess bloating. That can be an indicator. Again, if your stomach gets triggered after stress, like very, very stressed, like very triggered. So of course it's normal for us to feel like an upset tummy, you know, when we're stressed or some of these gastrointestinal discomforts, but if it gets like severe, like you're throwing up or like, you know, other stuff is happening, like seek a medical provider because that is likely like dangerous and um, it's definitely a sign of really poor gut health. So those are some signs, um, just some general ones, but of course there's a lot more Okay, so that wrapped up my Q&A and my kind of research review on gut health and wow, that was so much fun. Okay, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Again, I um, take everything I say with a grain of salt, right? Do not go saying that, you know, eating too gross proves that sugar is bad for your gut. No, like just take everything in moderation, just like you do everything in moderation. And I'm so excited to share all this information with you. And of course, if you want links to more of these studies, like please contact me. If you want to talk about this, like contact me. I love having these conversations about the microbiome and everything. Um, and just like all the research that I'm personally involved in and stuff. I just, yeah, I love this stuff and make sure to take care of your guts and trust your gut. Really do. It's important. Um, so yeah, again, thank you so much for listening and I hope you all have an amazing day and just know that you are loved and you are worthy and your gut is beautiful. Just give your bacteria a little round of applause today because they absolutely rock. All right. Bye friends.